0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Um, so the book of Genesis starts with this big, glorious, amazing, magnificent God who is just existing kind of out in his own. And he creates this world. He creates this universe and fills it with life. And then puts Adam and Eve, these first two human beings, in charge of this world and gives them a commission to image him in the world, to spread his glory and his fame among all of the creation and to oversee it with the goodness that they have received from God. And then human sin comes into the world. There's a rebellion that happens. Adam and Eve disobey God and human sin uh, now begins to permeate and destroy everything that the world has made. Humanity is still made in God's image. The world is still good, but now it's corrupted by rebellion came through Satan and then through sin into the human race now human race is at odds with God there's this war between God and his creation uh, that begins and they're banished from the garden they're given a sentence of death and yet they're given this promise that a seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent that one day all that's wrong and broken will be undone and will be restored and it will be done by God in response to a promise and it will come through the seed of a woman Well, evil just continues to spread, humanity gets worse, and God cleanses the world with a global flood. It starts with like, a new family, a new Adam, so to speak, named Noah and his family. But sin begins to permeate everywhere, and humanity actually gets to such a point that they want to rival God. They want to build a tower up to heaven, in a sense to dethrone God, to rival God, to make something great of themselves apart from God. And so God confuses their languages and scatters them all over the world and uh and and then what we have is we have this all of a sudden after all of these massive cosmic events of creation and flood and scattering we then zero in on a 75 year old man named abraham and god says i am going to do my redemptive work through you and through your family through all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you you will get land and you will have seed and you will have blessing and in you all the nations will be blessed and we have that in Genesis chapter 12. And we have Abraham who believes God, just believes this promise. He doesn't have any kids. And yet he believes this promise of a God he just met. And he moves, he relocates his family, begins this long journey of faith. And so we've been walking since chapter 12, just following this one family whom God gave a promise. And God continues to protect this family uh, in spite of threats from the outside, in in spite of threats from within. Often they're their own worst enemies. And so this promise of God, we've just been tracing it through this man and through his family to go, will God keep his promise? Will God redeem the world from sin and death and hell and Satan? Will he do it? And threat after threat comes up from without or from within, and God continues to be faithful. We see that promise passes down from Abraham to his son Isaac, and then from Isaac, he has twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older. You would expect him to get the promise, but God actually surprisingly chooses Jacob Jacob has an up-and-down relationship with God, but God is faithful to him. God changes his name. God claims him for himself. And then through Jacob, there are 12 sons that are born. And we're looking at the beginning of a nation. We're looking at the 12 tribes of Israel. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and now we have these 12 sons born from four different women that are going to be the nation-state of Israel. They're going to be the promise that God brings, but we're still watching. Where is this promise going to come? How is this promise going to come to And there is a favored son by the name of Joseph, whom God gives, or not God, Jacob gives a special coat to to show that he has prominence over his brothers. His brothers get super jealous of that and actually put together a murderous plot to eliminate their favored brother. The family of faith is incredibly dysfunctional. There's favoritism in the family, there's rivalry, there is conceit, there is this dream that Joseph has that he's going to have prominence and leadership over his brothers. And they, in chapter 37 of Genesis, throw him in a pit, planning to put him to death. And yet, they decide, by God's hand, actually, to sell him off into slavery. They mistreat him, they abuse him, they plan to kill him, but eventually they sell him off into slavery. And he goes down into Egypt and is enslaved. And we get these two pictures. We get the ten brothers, they're still in the land of promise. um, And they're being blessed in many ways, but they're also a total mess, morally. There's still all kinds of brokenness and sin. We see that in Judah. And then we've been following Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. And then through a false accusation, he is thrown in prison. He's thrown in prison. And then in prison, he begins to flourish in prison. And these two uh, government officials are thrown in jail for a conspiracy against Pharaoh. And he interprets their dreams. And, uh, and tells them to remember him when they get freed, when the cupbearer gets freed. And he forgets about him, and two more years in prison, until finally Pharaoh has dreams. And the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and Joseph is brought into the palace. He's cleaned up, he's shaven, he's looking good, he's looking, he's looking like he's ready for church, right? He's come before Pharaoh, he's looking great, and, uh, and he interprets the dreams. And there's these seven years of plenty that are going to come to Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph gives him some good counsel and says, get a man who will help you store up the good blessing in the seven years so that then you'll have provisions in the second seven years. Pharaoh is impressed with Joseph, and Joseph now goes from being in the prison to the palace. He's now second in command, and you've seen God working this out. How is God going to use this family to bring about his promises? And now we see everything set up. We have these, these brothers that are in the land of Canaan, and the famine is about to hit, and we have Joseph in this place of prosperity and prominence in Egypt, and the whole world is now depending on Egypt to feed them. We have the setup now, of this huge reunion between these brothers who have mistreated their brother in horrible ways, and they're going to need to go to him now. So we're going to have this reunion. We're going to have two trips to Egypt now by these brothers that have betrayed their, that have betrayed Joseph into, um, into slavery. It's ultimately worked out. He's now in a position of power over them, and you have this reunion that's about to take place. And you wonder, what is Joseph going to do when he sees his brother? brothers that wanted to kill him brothers that decided to sell him into slavery think of all that has gone on in joseph's life over the last 21 years all of the heartache all of the pain all of the betrayal and his brothers have never once inquired about him no one has cared about joseph joseph has been on his own just he and god and now he's in a place of power and these brothers are about to come to him what will he do and there's really this question that lingers out out there Will Joseph be a man of revenge and retaliation, or will there be a reconciliation? That's really the point of this message here, is that when Joseph finally meets the people that have wronged him the worst, that he's had two decades to think about what they've done to him, now when he encounters them and he's in a position of power over them, will it be revenge or will it be reconciliation? What will happen to Joseph? We've seen Joseph's character tested again and again. He's been tested with suffering. He's been tef- tested with slavery. He's been tested with false accusation. He's been tested with prison. He's been tested with, um, with, uh, with the kingdom now. And now he's about to be tested in, in a certain way of like, what kind of man is he when he all of a sudden has the ability to get revenge, to get back at those who wronged him? Um, I, I watch a fair number of like murder mysteries and stuff like that. I'm not proud of it, but it is interesting. And you sometimes wonder, like you get these people that like someone something bad has happened to them, and they just want revenge, right? Like they just want to get like if they could get their hands around that person's neck. Joseph's in the position; he's in the position now to totally bring about vengeance and revenge. And we'll see what kind of man he is here. Um, so we've got two trips: one in chapter 42, and then we'll have a second trip in in chapters 43 and 44. This is a big chunk of scripture, but the story is pretty compelling. So I'm just going to read large chunks of it. Trip number one breaks down like this. I think I've got it on the slide here so you can track through this long chapter here. Um, Trip number one is gonna be to Egypt without Benjamin. Then we'll see an unnerving harshness from Joseph. Joseph's gonna test them in some ways. And then we have uh, a return with Joseph's money and then Reuben offers his offspring as a substitute, okay? So just so you kinda know. Major movements of this chapter. Let's now read it, and I'll pause after each one of these and make some comments so you can kind of navigate the story. So here we go. Trip one to Egypt without Benjamin. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come upon him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Alright, so jo- Jacob is a bit of a cranky old man. You're going to see that throughout this chapter. He's kind of cranky for the next few chapters. He's still grieving the loss of his son, Joseph. He believes that Joseph is dead. And he's and his beloved wife, Rachel, is dead. And, and so he's only got one son from Rachel left, which is Benjamin. These are the 10 brothers that go down there. These are the 10 brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. So this is the exact two characters in chapter 37 that are gonna be brought into conflict. And Benjamin is this key player. He kind of becomes the pawn in this whole thing. Jacob wants to keep him with them. And then you're gonna see that Joseph wants them to bring Benjamin. And then they're gonna have to persuade their father to send Benjamin. Like Benjamin is gonna be kind of the key component to the future of this family. The key to reconciliation is going to kind of be centered around how these guys deal with Benjamin. And so uh, Jacob's a bit cranky here. Benjamin's the key to the story. He's not sent. There's just a mistrust from Jacob of his sons. He just doesn't trust these 10 boys at all. Let's look at verses 6 through 24. An unnerving harshness from Joseph. Now watch this. This is such a masterful story. Just watch all the nuances of this right here. Now Joseph was governor over the land, He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Ah, that's a fulfillment of the dream. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is, with, uh, youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go, and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not. This is why distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he understood, and he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So you see this drama, right? These ten brothers have come. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And he plays the Egyptian card. He goes ahead and just plays the card here. And, uh, and they aren't picking up on it, but he's picking up on what they're doing. So, again, like we said, this is a fulfillment of the dream. Joseph himself understands this. Um, he's 17 when this dream happened. He's roughly 38 years old now. So he's remembered this dream, and now they're bowing down to him, just like they said they never would. The reason they wanted to put him to death was so that they, that dream wouldn't come true. This is incredible odds that Joseph would happen to be the one who encounters them, would be the one that they do business with. Egypt, Egypt's a big country. You can imagine that it would be pretty random which guy you're dealing with, but God and his providence brings the ten brothers right in front of him. Um, this is a, a reality that Joseph's going to exploit. Um, there's a harsh accusation that causes them to reveal valuable information to Joseph. Notice that he accuses them of being spies, which if you think about it, a whole family sending 10 sons in one group and going, yeah, you're all from one dad, right? Like he sent all of you. Like it does look kind of suspicious. And in his challenge, he gains information from them. He gains information that they have a father. He realizes his dad's still alive. Praise God. His beloved father is still alive. He hasn't heard about him in forever. And he learns that his younger brother is still alive. He knows that he and his brother, as the sons of the favored wife, that his younger brother, maybe he's faced the same fate. Maybe his brother's killed him off too, but no, his brother's alive. And his brother's with his dad, and so this overwhelms Joseph as he thinks about this, and he tests them, and they tell the truth. That's really the first test here is, like, will these men be honest? They've never been honest. They've been lying to their father. They've been lying about what happened to Joseph. Will these men be honest? And in this first test of harshness, he gets valuable information from them and realizes that maybe there's a little bit of a change in them honest. We're not here as spies. And he realizes and gains all of this important information. This is a little bit of a mini version of his own experience. He kind of puts them through a miniature version of what he's been through, right? Which is a false accusation and an imprisonment. They kind of get to feel a little bit of the consequences of their actions on him. And on a much smaller scale, they get to experience a little bit of what Joseph's experienced a little bit, which is a false accusation and an imprisonment, an imprisonment in an Egyptian jail, just to sort of soften their hearts in this sense. We see that Joseph drops some hints because in verse 18, he says that he fears God, which should be a little bit of a hint. He's going to drop hints to these brothers that they're not going to pick up. He talks in verse 18 that he's going to release them. He's going to release them. He's going to give them a chance to vindicate themselves, to prove their claim because he has a fear of God. And that's in itself is a bit of a test. Do they fear God? There's been nothing in these men that seems like they would be fearful of God, but Joseph does, and Joseph signals to them. And they kind of get the signal because what happens is as they begin to have their consciences pricked in verse 21 and go, you know what? This harsh treatment is coming to us because of how we've mistreated Joseph. They actually never speak ill of Joseph. They call him harsh, which he kind of is with them. But they always attribute this, that maybe this is God bringing about a certain retaliation against us that we deserve this. That's their disposition. We deserve this because of what we've done to our brother. Except for Reuben. Reuben wants himself out of this. Like he's the leader of the family. He's the firstborn. He's like, I told you, you shouldn't have done it. It's just such bad leadership. Such bad leadership. We'll see Reuben make it worse later. We see that these brothers begin to see that this is a tool of God's higher justice. They, this punishment with crime against Joseph. And Joseph is orchestrating this. One commentator named Donald Barnhouse says this, a physicist could compute the exact time required for crimes to go 25 yards to the eardrums of the brothers, but it took 22 years for that cry from the pit of Joseph to reach their hearts, right? It was a split second, they could hear him as they were about to sell him into into slavery. They could hear his cries for mercy and they would not listen to their innocent brother in the pit, instead they sold him off. And now it's finally reaching their hearts. 21, 25 years later, finally, they're feeling the prick of conviction of what they've done all these years earlier. I don't think Joseph is doing this out of vindictiveness because he does leave a few times to weep. He has a deep heart for his brothers, and he has a deep heart for his family. And while he's putting them through this, he's testing them to see if they've really changed. Have they really changed? Joseph was acting to ascertain his brother's attitudes and and their willingness to heal, heal the breach. Are they in a place where they could be reconciled? And they have to go through a period of testing for that to happen. A quick pardon would not have led to true repentance and the true healing that's needed here. There needed to be a period of testing before reconciliation could happen. Simeon is kept as collateral. He binds him right in front of them so that they can understand the consequences and the seriousness as they go back home without their brother. He's going to keep Simeon as collateral to ensure that they will come back with Benjamin. Joseph knows what they don't know. This famine a got a ways to go. They might be thinking we get enough grain and we can make it through because this is just a short famine. Well, Joseph knows. He knows the bigger story. They're going to need to come back. He knows we're only like in year two of this famine. So he can play the long game. He can send them back, hold the brothers so that they have to come back to Egypt, but he knows that they're going to need more grain this is where that dream, that trust in God's promises, in God's revelation, causes him to be able to play a longer game with them and bring a deeper reconciliation than if it was just having to need to be worked out in this one uh, this one uh, scenario. So here's the big question. Have brother, Joseph's brothers changed? That's what he's trying to find out. And if the answer is yes, he can reconcile with them. The family can be reunited. If his brothers have not changed, then he needs to rescue his brother Benjamin from them. I think that's what Joseph's doing here. Because so I think out of respect for the family and the promise of God, he knows that Benjamin might still be in danger if these brothers have not changed. So this is a win-win for Joseph. Either his brothers have changed and he can reconcile, or they haven't changed and he can get his brother safely into his own care. Okay? I think that's what's happening here. So the rest of chapter 42, well, actually, just let's look at 25 through twenty-eight. A return with Joseph's money. Here's why I don't think Joseph is trying to crush them. I don't think he's being vindictive because look what he does here. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. So he gives them the money back for their money and gas money. He paid for their trip and gave them the grain and the money back. This was done for them. This is just grace. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sacks to give his donkey some fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money is back in has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So they attribute this to being God. This act of grace scares them. You ever been in that spot where grace is actually scary? Like, it'd be easier to get what I deserve, but the fact that I didn't get what I deserve, that's actually a little more unnerving, right? When someone gives me grace, then I really don't know what to do with that, right? (laughs) That's what happens, they're encountering grace here. There could be a charge of theft now brought towards them, but that's not something Joseph's gonna play. This is an act of grace. And this is the first explicit mention of God by any of the brothers. They see the hand of God in this. They see God as both testing them with harshness and with grace. There's both a a, a justice that's coming through what they've experienced, but then there's also grace. And both are tests of their hearts. And they see this test as coming from God, not from Joseph, ultimately. So we're beginning to see that this is working. This testing is working. Maybe there is something in these brothers that is able to be reconciled with. Joseph signals forgiveness and grace and giving the money back. But this forgiveness and grace is really unsettling for them. Grace and forgiveness is very unsettling. And they're feeling that. They're trembling at what they've experienced together. And then we get Reuben, the firstborn. He's going to take charge of the situation and just watch what he does here because they know the mission here. They have to get, they have to get their dad to agree to let Benjamin go with them. And Reuben's going to try to make the case for that. Reuben offers his own offspring as a substitute. Verses 29 through 38. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest in this day is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest man. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin all of this has come against me again jo- Jacob's just not in a great place right and every time he puts something in the hands of these brothers he loses it right something bad happens so he's he's got a right to be cranky to some extent but Joseph is not or I'm sorry Jacob is not easy to deal with here so here let's see Reuben then Reuben said to his father kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So now at least they're honest in retelling the story to Jacob. They could make up a story going, Yeah, Simeon wandered off. I guess a bear got him. Which is sort of what they did with Joseph, right? Hey, here's a bloody... At least they're honest with their father even though it doesn't look good for them. So there is there does seem to be improvement here. But Reuben, who wanted to distance himself from the guilt of the brothers earlier in the chapter, like, I told you not to do this. Well, now what he's doing is instead of offering himself as a guarantee for his brother's safety, he's like, why don't you kill my two boys? He's putting other people responsible for his actions. Like, this is this is kind of, this is not great. This is not great leadership on Reuben's part. And what grandfather's going to put his son's, his grandsons to death their reputation is coming back on them and they've cost joseph jacob two sons there's no way that jacob is going to allow precious benjamin to be taken with them especially if this is the kind of man that's in charge reuben reuben makes a silly hasty vow regarding his sons of course this is empty and foolish and shameful i think jacob sees right through this this is not a genuine offer from reuben and who would say that who would say that kill my kids if i don't come through no kill me like Put yourself on the line, Reuben, for once. He's always pushing the buck on the responsibility on somebody else. We're never gonna see another word from Reuben ever again. This is it. He is done as leader of the family. He's still gonna be part of the family, but you're gonna see someone else here in the next section step up into the leadership role of the family. It's gonna be really significant. Okay, so that's trip number one. Now we're set up for trip number two. Look at chapter 43, 1 through 15. And I want you to notice a parallel. So this trip is going to take two chapters, but you see a parallel, a trip to Egypt without Benjamin in trip 42. Now they're going to have Benjamin go with them. Instead of harshness, they're going to experience kindness. And uh, when they return, it's going to be not Joseph's money, but Joseph's cup. And spoiler alert, Judah is going to offer himself. Whereas Reuben is the leader of the family who offers others. Judah is going to offer himself as a substitute. Let's look at it. So verses 1 through 15, to Egypt with Benjamin, all right? The one who's kind of the key player, the key silent player, Benjamin, right? Joseph wants him with him. Jacob wants him with him. The brothers have to convince that he's going to be safe with them. Benjamin is sort of the key to reunifying the family. Now, the famine was severe in the land, chapter 43, verse 1. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us. And so now look who's talking for the brothers, Judah. You shall, see my face. you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down to buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why didn't you lie? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was an answer to his questions. These, could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, if we had not delayed, we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to him, I think he sees like Judah is just very persuasive with his words here, and I think speaks from the heart. And look what happens in his father to his father. It's it's not great, but it's it, <laughs> they get what they need. Then their father Israel said to say, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them in Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So they're back at square one minus Simeon and Judah intercedes for the family. And he takes the blame upon himself, Father, you're gonna have to trust us. You're gonna have to trust me and I will make myself a pledge. And it persuades, it persuades the father to give up what is most precious to him. Judah steps up, putting the responsibility not on others, but on himself. Reuben is done. Simeon is done. He's in prison. Levi is essentially invisible, and so the fourth one in line now is Judah to take leadership of the family, and he intercedes with honor. He leads the family with honor and compassion, and he appeals to his father for the sake of the family, taking the blame upon himself. Jacob ultimately relents, but is still largely focused on himself, and he's just resigned that this is probably going to turn out badly. I'm going to die of grief, but I guess if you have to go, you have to go. I want to point out just a couple interesting things in this paragraph. One is that Judah tells tells Jacob that he will be a pledge, which is exactly what Tamar took from Judah as a pledge. was his staff and his signet ring to prove and to hold accountable Judah, Judah now is himself going to be the pledge. The pledge that brought about conviction (laughs) in his own heart. Now he's using that same language to go, I will be it. I will be the pledge. I will be the the certainty that justice will be done, that the right thing will be done. That happens back in chapter 40. Tamar holds in pledge. I think that's maybe 39. In verse 11, the same items that the Ishmaelites were carrying down into Egypt when they bought Joseph on the way down, chapter 37, verse 25, Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to Egypt. I don't know that Jacob knows this, but he's a little bit twisting the knife in the brothers a little bit, right? When you sold your brother into slavery, what were those people carrying as a gift down to e- down to Egypt? Well, these items. Well, he says, why don't you take these gifts to Egypt? Which has got to be a little bit like, ooh, <laughs> chills, right, of... This reminds us of what we've done to our brother. We've got to go make it right. We've got to go back. So you just have this interesting parallel there where God is sort of working on the hearts of these people, of these brothers. And then in verse 12, each has to take double back the money. So they have, you have 10 brothers now going down. They each have twice the money, which means they all have 20 pieces of money. And that's what Joseph was sold for. They're now carrying money that matches the 20 cycles of silver that they sold Joseph for. So there's this walking through what they've done um, in front of them. Now we see an unnerving kindness from Joseph. Initially when they came, they were accused of being spies. Now look at how they're treated by Joseph in chapter 43. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. He thinks we stole the money. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack our money in full weight we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food we do not know who put their money in their sacks they're trembling rightfully so right like oh man this could get us killed so they come up to the steward going man we need to be honest this money was there we didn't do it and look what it says here's what the steward says peace be with you do not be afraid your god and the god of your father has put treasure in your sacks for I received your money. I think Joseph paid for it. That's what happens. I think the accounting still worked out because I think Joseph paid for it. Oh, I received the money. I think that's an honest statement. And you were given back your own stuff. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, then washed their feet. And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his brother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. Uh, That'll be important. for that is an an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him and the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So such a different reception, right? From an accusation of spies in prison to now, hey, come to Joseph's private palace and let's have lunch just a totally different Joseph is testing them with a whole different he tested them with false accusations and harshness now now he's gonna test them with kindness and favoritism he's gonna test them in the same ways that he was favored and he was uh, was blessed by his brothers are his brother's gonna get jealous so he's testing them both with harshness and now with blessing with kindness their debt has been paid God is credited as providing for them through another Joseph drops another hint. He remembers their whole story. That would be a bit strange, right? Like, what are the odds that the guy you bought some grain from would remember your whole family story? He's dropping a hint here. He's dropping a bit of a hint that he remembers their story, his father, their brother. He remembers their whole story. He shows great affection and favoritism for Benjamin. That should have been a clue. This is weird. He seats them in birth order, and they're amazed by that. The odds of getting that right just randomly is 1 in 40 million. And so they see that, they notice that we're sat in birth order and our father's favorite son is getting five times the portions we get. It's a test, it's a test of kindness. They're to see God's hand in this. Joseph again goes out and weeps upon the side of his brother showing that his heart is full of compassion. He's not meaning to torture these guys. He's wanting to test to see if their hearts have changed. This is all a test. The first test was to see if they're honest and they passed. The second, is, will they be jealous of someone who is shown favor, favoritism? Will they ultimately sell him out? And instead they marvel and they just enjoy the feast without grumbling. They pass. They essentially pass the test. Just that little note about Egyptians and Hebrews. As Palestinian shepherds, the Hebrews followed different dietary practices and slaughtered for food animals that the Egyptians thought were sacred. That's why they didn't dine together. The Egyptians just thought Hebrews were gross. Just gross. You just, I can't believe you eat that stuff, right? That's going to be important because when they move to Egypt, they're going to be settled in, in Goshen. So they're going to be removed from the temptation to intermarry with the Canaanites. But they're also, because of the Egyptians' prejudice, so to speak, they're going to be preserved as a people from intermarrying with the Egyptians. And God is going to keep his people pure through this whole set of circumstances, even the prejudices of the Egyptians. Let's look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 44. So now the return, right? They've gone down without Benjamin, returned with Joseph's money. They were tested with harshness. Now they've gone to Egypt with Benjamin. They've, reserved, they've had unnerving kindness from Joseph, and now they're going to return, but there's a, a twist. There's another twist that Joseph has for them. Look at verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put in each put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. He's going to do that again because it's fun. And he put and put my cup, the silver cup. So just to be specific, this is not his ordinary drinking cup. This is like his special royal cup. In the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, "Up." Follow after the man, and when you overtake them, say, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Be aggressive with them. You can almost maybe see Joseph with a little smirk. Chase them down. Give them a hard time. Give them a hard time. Here we go. They said to him, um, but when, verse 6, When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak with such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. They should not say that. They've already rendered a judgment. If anyone finds, if you find it, that brother will die. We're just so sure that we're innocent. And we also will be the Lord's servants. Then you can enslave the rest of us death penalty for the one who has it enslavement for the rest of us he said let it be as you say he who is found is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent so the steward the guy that chased them down goes let's back it up a bit. just one will be slave we're not doing any killing today then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched and you get the drama here beginning with the eldest beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So you just see the drama here, right? Chasing them down. They're so confident they haven't done anything wrong. They're looking out for each other. They're actually unified as brothers here. They're looking out for each other. This is good. And they're willing, like, bring justice. Bring your harshest justice. We're men of integrity now. And so from the oldest to the youngest, because I imagine they probably know where the cup is, right? going to go through all of them. and I can imagine as they go through each sack, each the brothers are gaining in confidence. Like, oh yeah, this is going to work out. And then, no, not Benjamin. No. Would have just made their hearts sink. And here's the temptation. Here is the trial. They have already been told that only the one who's found with the cup will be brought back and brought into enslavement. The others may go. Now it's a test. Will these brothers bail on their brother when it's advantageous? They did it with Joseph looking out for their own interests, they'll sell Joseph out. Will they sell Benjamin out? The stakes are much higher now. We're talking about the livelihood of the rest of their family. Will they sell out Benjamin? And here's what happens, verse 13. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? In other words, I can make life really bad for you. (laughs) You stole from the wrong guy. And Judah said, what shall we say? Now look who's speaking up now for the family. Look at this. This is the longest speech in Genesis. And it's given to Judah. And just listen to the sweetness of this. Listen to the heart of this man as he steps up in this tremendous situation. Just watch Judah here. The rest of this chapter is just a speech of Judah. Now listen to this. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found, shall be my servant. This is Joseph speaking. But as for you, you go up to your father. You're free to go. They have the opportunity right in front of them to be rid of Benjamin, to be rid of these favored sons, and to live in prosperity. They just have to break their father's heart. That's really all that they have to do, which they're good at. They've done that before. Here it is. It's all served up to them by Joseph. And here we get Judah. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, please, let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord, ask his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his, own age, his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of my mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless the youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we, we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me. And I said, surely he has become torn to pieces. And I have seen, I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, listen to this, verse 33 now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me I fear to see the evil that will find my father Just a sweet speech just recounting that like we have done everything you've asked of us and if you have to keep someone keep me if you have to take a life if you have to take a slave if someone must pay for this let me pay for All the brothers participate in grief. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 37 when their father grieved Joseph. They just stood there. He alone was in sackcloth and ashes. Now they're all grieving. They're all grieving the potential loss of Benjamin. They have changed. This is the longest speech in Genesis. Masterful, heartfelt, moving, persuasive. One commentator wrote, This is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Another commentator put it this way: this is the most moving address in all of the Word of God. A brother laying down his life for his brother. The heart of Judah, the one is the he's the one that came up with the idea to sell Joseph. And now given that opportunity again to sell another brother with the stakes far higher, he won't do it. He will sell himself before he sells his brother. Because Judah loves his father. He's willing to put himself forth as a substitute for the sake of the father. His father comes up 14 times in the narrative. My father, I love my father. I couldn't do this to my father. I couldn't do it to him. Judah has changed. He's gone from selling his brother in chapter 37 to boxing out. You remember boxing out Tamar from having children and then using her as a prostitute and then wanting her to be killed when he finds out she's pregnant? and then she brings forth, she confronts him, he's exposed as guilty, and he says, she's more righteous than I, and we have this change. This is a different man now. He's now confessed twice. He's confessed in, in, uh, in the episode with Tamar, and then he confesses here. My Lord, the guilt of, these, of, of me and my brothers has been found out. And I think he's actually speaking about Joseph, not about the cup. They're not guilty for stealing the cup, but he feels guilt, feels the guilt of all the things that he's done wrong, the situation that he has put this family in. He's a leader. He's transformed. And Judah, in some ways, now begins to look a little bit like Jesus, right? Me for him. Me for him. May justice fall on me and let the sinner go free. Judah has a wife and children at home, yet he will leave it all rather than abandon his brother. He will henceforth be a slave if only Benjamin would be free. Was ever there a love like this? One person put it this way: What must Benjamin have felt when he heard his older brother conclude his speech with this proposal—that he never thought would have ever been made by this brother—to have this brother say these kinds of things for you? What would this have done to Benjamin's heart? Perhaps the annals of the whole world could not produce an instance so heroic and disinterested in his own well-being than this. And what is it like to be Joseph hearing this? The brother who sold you out is now saying this, looking in the eyes of the man who betrayed you, going, no, not, not him, me. What would this do in Joseph's soul? We'll see that next week. So we're going to have a to be continued. And you'll see what happens to Joseph when he sees and hears the moving heart of his brother, his brother willing to give his own life. And so we see this parallel, trip to Egypt without Benjamin, trip to Egypt with Benjamin unnerving harshness from Joseph, unnerving kindness from Joseph. Return with Joseph's money, return with Joseph's cup. Reuben offers offspring as a substitute, really icky and gross and not cool at all. Judah offers himself as a substitute. You just have the most beautiful picture in the world, right? You have just this beautiful willingness to lay himself down. And I have three takeaways for us and we're done. I want you to notice this thing. This is kind of a long one, this first one. Justice and mercy, discipline and grace, suffering and celebration go hand in hand. You see that throughout the Bible, that God is willing to use both instruments to do his redemptive, heart-transforming work in our lives. A lot of us would rather just be let off the hook for things, and in some sense we are because of Christ, but also sometimes God allows suffering and consequences and challenges to do the hard work of repentance in our hearts. Derek Kidner puts it this way, The rough handling, which now dominates the scene, has the look of vengeance. It looks mean by Joseph, but nothing could be more natural, nothing further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose, there was warm affection, and after the ordeal, overwhelming kindness. Even the threats were tempered with mercy. The shocks that were administered took the form of embarrassments rather than blows. His enigmatic gifts were a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in his brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke open their hearts to God. You see that? And that's how God works in our lives. So don't begrudge the discipline. Don't begrudge God may be working through both pressure and grace, right? (laughs) To do both of these things together, justice and mercy, discipline and grace, suffering and celebration, they all interweave together. In God's plan to change you and to change us and to change the world. Joseph gets it and he's applying that pressure to his brothers to see if they've really changed, if reconciliation is really possible. Which brings us to the next point here, the takeaway. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be forgiveness. I think Joseph has extended forgiveness to his brothers, but reconciliation, there needs to be some proven change. And that's an important thing for us to recognize. Like if you've been abused or mistreated by someone, that Forgiveness doesn't mean that you go back and put yourself in that same situation again. It is good and right for there to be forgiveness, but some time for reconciliation to be rebuilt. Does that make sense? Joseph models that for us, and that's good, and we need to remember that, that it is good to wait for there to be a change of heart. Forgiveness doesn't mean you put yourself back in a place where you'll get hurt and abused again. It doesn't mean, it does mean that you're going to ultimately leave the, leave the justice to God. But ultimately, it is good and right to wait for there to be repentance over time before the relationship is restored. Just know that. Just hear that. We have so many examples of that. One commentator said, Those who would participate in God's program must be willing to take responsibility for their actions, make restitution where they are culpable, and accept their lot gratefully and without jealousy. These brothers had to demonstrate that before Joseph was really going to be ready to reconcile and bring the whole thing together. And they needed this. They needed this process of confession, of guilt and sin. They needed to make some things right. They needed to prove before Joseph was then able to put things back together. Lastly, we see a Christ-shaped pattern in both Joseph and Judah. Joseph is a type of Christ as the sovereign, righteous Lord. He's exercising Lordship over this situation. He has the ability to control the situations. He has his levers on things and he is working things out for the good of the family. He's working things out for the good of the people. Judah is a type of Christ in being a sacrificial substitute. He's willing to stand and take the justice that someone else deserves, the punishment that someone else deserves. And so now we have this meeting, like all of these chapters that we've been spending time is to bring us to this moment where we have Judah, And we have Joseph face to face. The righteous Lord and the selfless substitute. Because in Christ, that's what we get. We needed both of these pictures to save the people of God. The people of God were needing to be rescued by a Lord and a Savior. I think that's why God does this. Joseph's going to become the functional firstborn. Judah's going to be the substitute. And I think God splits them up because in this narrative, we're supposed to see how both are needed for salvation of God's people. We need both a Savior and a Lord. We need someone to stand in our place before a holy God and take our punishment. And we need to submit and bow ourselves to the one who is righteous, who can lead all things, who is orchestrating the details of our life for our good, who gives us grace and provision and sometimes disciplines us. We get a picture of Jesus in these two men, Joseph and Judah sovereign Lord and a sacrificial substitute. Jesus is both the sovereign Lord over all the crazy circumstances, discipline and grace, suffering and blessing. He knows what he is doing. He knows what we don't know. We're like these brothers sort of going, what is going on? (laughs) Why am I in jail? And now why do I have too much money? And why do, why is the cup in my bag? And we have a sovereign Lord who's working all things if we will look to him. Jesus Christ is also our sacrificial substitute. He takes the cup of judgment that we deserve and willingly, even joyfully, according to Hebrews 12, lays down his life for us, both to save us from bondage and wrath and to please the Father. The Father is pleasing the Father. Jesus is pleasing the Father in saving us. May we put our trust in the greater Joseph and the greater Judah. This is what you need. You need a sovereign Lord and a sacrificial Savior. as we follow him, we then become ministers of justice and mercy. May we see God's hand in all things and not grumble. May we wisely position ourselves to do physical and spiritual good for others. We see these guys doing that. May we be willing to acknowledge and turn from our own sin. May we be the people who lay down our lives, our comforts, our prosperity for the sake of our brothers and sisters. So how will Joseph respond? This is sort of the cliffhanger that we're leaving it at right now. How will Joseph respond to this massive, gracious, persuasive appeal of love and self-sacrifice from Judah? Will it be revenge or reconciliation? Now it's back kind of in Joseph's hands. His brothers have changed. They're willing to die for each other now. You get this Christ-like picture, and now Joseph, what will Joseph do? What will the sovereign Lord do when a sacrifice is offered before? receive the sacrifice? Will he extend forgiveness and reconciliation? What will the Lord do based on this appeal from Judah? And the question for us is this, what about you? How will you respond to the massive, gracious, persuasive appeal of love and self-sacrifice from Christ for you? This is what Jesus is praying for you. This is what Jesus is offering to you, me in your place. God, we thank you for this story. It's a long one, three chapters. Filled with drama and tension and confusion. Uh, So much pain and brokenness is brought to the surface and dealt with in this passage. There's so much um, grace and forgiveness that is hard to figure out. uh, And so much unnerving situations. And so God, while the details are different, we find ourselves in that same uh, position often. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our sovereign Lord and our sacrificial Savior in Jesus Christ. And that we would trust in him. That all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. It took both Joseph and Judah doing what they did to bring about the salvation of God's people in a temporary sense. And we thank you that in one person we get both Savior and Lord. We get both Joseph and Judah to the infinite degree. Help us to see him. Help us to trust in him. Confess our sins. Repent of them and trust in the sovereign Lord and the sacrificial substitute. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.